Welcome to Jeff's Letters. This is an audio narration of Jeff Bezos's annual letter to shareholders. My name is Preet Anand, and I am your narrator. There's so much wisdom in these letters that they need to be as accessible as possible, and that's why I'm putting them on audio. This is a non-commercial effort, and my hope is that the 2020 letter Jeff narrates himself. Now, on to the letter. Jeff, what does day two look like? That's a question I got at our most recent all-hands meeting. I've been reminding people that it's day one for a couple of decades. I work in an amazing building named day one, and when I moved buildings, I took the name with me. I spend time thinking about this topic. I responded, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. And that is why it's always day one. To be sure, this kind of decline would happen in extreme slow motion. An established company might harvest day two for decades, but the final result would still come. I'm interested in the question, how do you fend off day two? What are the techniques and tactics? How do you keep the vitality of day one, even inside a large organization? Such a question can't have a simple answer. There will be many elements, multiple paths, and many traps. I don't know the whole answer, but I may know bits of it. Here's a starter pack of essentials for day one defense. Customer obsession, a skeptical view of proxies, the eager adoption of external trends, and high-velocity decision-making. True customer obsession. There are many ways to center a business. You can be competitor-focused, you can be product-focused, you can be technology-focused, you can be business model-focused, and there are more. But in my view, obsessive customer focus is by far the most protective of day one vitality. Why? There are many advantages to a customer-centric approach, but here's the big one. Customers are always beautifully, wonderfully dissatisfied even when they report being happy and business is great. Even when they don't know it yet, customers want something better, and your desire to delight customers will drive you to invent on their behalf. No customer ever asked Amazon to create the Prime Membership Program, but it sure turns out they wanted it, and I could give you many such examples. Staying in day one requires you to experiment patiently, accept failures, plant seeds, protect saplings, and double down when you see customer delight. A customer-obsessed culture best creates the conditions where all of that can happen. Resist proxies. As companies get larger and more complex, there's a tendency to manage to proxies. This comes in many shapes and sizes, and it's dangerous, subtle, and very day two. A common example is process as proxy. Good process serves you so you can serve customers. But if you're not watchful, the process can become the thing. This can happen very easily in large organizations. The process becomes the proxy for the results you want. You stop looking at outcomes and just make sure you're doing the process right. Gulp. It's not that rare to hear a junior leader defend a bad outcome with something like, well, we followed the process. A more experienced leader will use it as an opportunity to investigate and improve the process. The process is not the thing. It's always worth asking, do we own the process or does the process own us? In a day two company, you might find it's the second. Another example, 
Market research and customer surveys can become proxies for customers, something that's especially dangerous when you're inventing and designing products. 55% of beta testers report being satisfied with this feature. That is up from 40% in the first survey. That's hard to interpret and could unintentionally mislead. Good inventors and designers deeply understand their customer. They spend tremendous energy developing that intuition. They study and understand many anecdotes rather than only the averages you'll find on surveys. They live with the design. I'm not against beta testing or surveys, but you, the product or service owner, must understand the customer, have a vision, and love the offering. Then, beta testing and research can help you find your blind spots. A remarkable customer experience starts with heart, intuition, curiosity, play, guts, and taste. You won't find any of that in a survey. Embrace external trends. The outside world can push you into day two if you won't or can't embrace powerful trends quickly. If you fight them, you're probably fighting the future. Embrace them, and you have a tailwind. These big trends are not that easy to spot. Embrace external trends. The outside world can push you into day two if you won't or can't embrace powerful trends quickly. If you fight them, you're probably fighting the future. Embrace them, and you have a tailwind. These big trends are not that hard to spot. They get talked and written about a lot. But they can be strangely hard for large organizations to embrace. We're in the middle of an obvious one right now machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Over the past decades, computers have broadly automated tasks that programmers could describe with clear rules and algorithms. Modern machine learning techniques now allow us to do the same for tasks where describing the precise rules is much harder. At Amazon, we've been engaged in the practical application of machine learning for many years now. Some of this work is highly visible. Our autonomous prime air delivery drones, the Amazon Go convenience store that uses machine vision to eliminate checkout lines, and Alexa, our cloud-based AI assistant. As a side note, we still struggle to keep Echo in stock despite our best efforts. A high-quality problem, but a problem. We're working on it. But much of what we do with machine learning happens beneath the surface. Machine learning drives our algorithm for demand forecasting, product search ranking, product and deals recommendations, merchandising placements, fraud detection, translations, and much more. Though less visible, much of the impact of machine learning will be of this type, quietly but meaningfully improving core operations. Inside AWS, we're excited to lower the costs and barriers to machine learning and AI so organizations of all sizes can take advantage of these advanced techniques. Using our prepackaged versions of popular deep learning frameworks running on P2 compute instances, customers are already developing powerful systems ranging everywhere from early disease detection to increased crop yields. And we've also made Amazon's higher-level services available in a convenient form. Amazon Lex, which is what's inside of Alexa, Amazon Polly, and Amazon Recognition remove the heavy lifting from natural language and understanding speech generation, and image analysis. They can be accessed with simple API calls. No machine learning expertise required. Watch this space. Much more to come. High-quality decision-making. Day two companies make high-quality decisions 
but they make high-quality decisions slowly. To keep the energy and dynamism of day one, you have to somehow make high-quality, high-velocity decisions, easy for startups and very challenging for large organizations. The senior team at Amazon is determined to keep our decision-making velocity high. Speed matters in business, plus a high-velocity decision-making environment is more fun too. We don't know all the answers, but here are some thoughts. First, never use a one-size-fits-all decision-making process. Many decisions are reversible two-way doors. Those decisions can use a lightweight process. For those, so what if you're wrong? I wrote about this in more detail in last year's letter. Second, most decisions should probably be made with somewhere around 70% of the information you wish you had. If you wait for 90%, in most cases, you're probably being slow. Plus, either way, you need to be good at quickly recognizing and correcting bad decisions. If you're good at course correcting, being wrong may be less costly than you think, whereas being slow is going to be expensive for sure. Third, use the phrase disagree and commit. This phrase will save a lot of time. If you have conviction on a particular direction, even though there's no consensus, it's helpful to say, look, I know we disagree on this, but will you gamble with me on it? Disagree and commit? By the time you're at this point, no one can know the answer for sure, and you'll probably get a quick yes. This isn't one way. If you're the boss, you should do this too. I disagree and commit all the time. We recently greenlit a particular Amazon Studios original. I told the team my view, debatable whether it would be interesting enough, complicated to produce, the business terms aren't that good, and we have lots of other opportunities. They had a completely different opinion and wanted to go ahead. I wrote back right away with, I disagree and commit and hope it becomes the most watched thing we've ever made. Consider how much slower this decision cycle would have been if the team had actually had to convince me rather than simply get my commitment. Note what this example is not. It's not me thinking to myself, well, these guys are wrong and missing the point, but this isn't worth me chasing. It's a genuine disagreement of opinion, a candid expression of my view, a chance for the team to weigh my view, and a quick, sincere commitment to go their way. And given that this team has already brought home 11 Emmys, six Golden Globes, and three Oscars, I'm just glad they let me in the room at all. Fourth, recognize true misalignment issues early and escalate them immediately. Sometimes teams have different objectives and fundamentally different views. They are not aligned. No amount of discussion, no number of meetings will resolve that misalignment. Without escalation, the default dispute resolution mechanism for this scenario is exhaustion. Whoever has more stamina carries the decision. I've seen many examples of sincere misalignment at Amazon over the years. When we decided to invite third-party sellers to compete directly against us on our own product detail pages, that was a big one. Many smart, well-intentioned Amazonians were simply not at all aligned with the direction. The big decisions set up hundreds of small, smaller decisions, many of which needed to be escalated to the senior team. You've worn me down is an awful decision-making process. It's slow and de-energizing. Go for quick escalation instead. It's better. So have you settled only for decision quality, or are you mindful of decision velocity too? Are the world's trends tailwinds for you? Are you falling prey to proxies, or do they serve you? And most important of all, are you delighting customers?
We can have the scope and capabilities of a large company and the spirit and heart of a small one, but we have to choose it. A huge thank you to each and every customer for allowing us to serve you, to our share owners for your support, and to Amazonians everywhere for your hard work, your ingenuity, and your passion. As always, I attach a copy of our original 1997 letter. It remains day one. Sincerely, Jeff Bezos, founder and chief executive officer, Amazon.com Incorporated. This letter is an incredible playbook for day one. As Jeff himself says, it's a starter pack of essentials. Customer obsession, a skeptical view of proxies, the eager adoption of external trends, and high-velocity decision-making. I think two of these are actually much harder than the others. I think a skeptical view of proxies and the eager adoption of external trends aren't too hard to implement. A skeptical view of proxies means that you need to have your own sense of the customer. And most of us, if we enjoy the products we work on, if we enjoy the areas we work on, that's not too hard. You develop your own feel. The eager adoption of external trends, everyone likes the winds at their, wind at their backs. This is almost something we should always start with as an assumption and a aspiration. But customer obsession and high-velocity decision-making are hard. It's not something that comes natural to everyone and also becomes less natural to people as an organization scales. Let's touch on each one. Customer obsession. The difference between this, as Jeff says, is competitor obsession, market obsession, and even product obsession. And why I think customer obsession is hard is because you're always staying focused on the person and their entire experience rather than just what your part, your current business is part in. And so it means you have to fight some cost fallacy at all times. You have to not just say, here's what our current product is. How do I make my current product better? You say, here's who our customer is. Here's what they're experiencing from us and from others. But how can we do better? And a lot of times, companies define themselves not by their customers, but they define themselves by what they offer. They define themselves by who their competitors are. And there's a big distinction between those two. The other one that's hard is high-velocity decision-making. The reason this one is actually very hard is because fear of being wrong is a very real fear. No one likes to say that they were wrong. No one likes to say they messed up. But being as right as possible usually means you're moving slower than you could be. And so in many ways, to have high-velocity decision-making means you have to have more risk tolerance. And as organizations get bigger, they have less risk tolerance. So culturally accepting risk and looking at risk tolerance and and with that high-velocity decision-making as an ingredient towards your business success, that's a leap for a lot of folks. And one leap further is then to disagree and commit that, you know, Jeff in this case probably doesn't know everybody on that team personally. He no longer has close relationships where he's willing to inherently trust the people. In this case, he's in many ways having a process where he's going to disagree and commit or the team can disagree and commit because of a ownership as part of the culture and that you're willing again to have the risk tolerance to let someone go for it 
and that you're committing to them going for it. And that takes trust and that takes that risk tolerance, but it also on the other side takes true accountability. Sometimes you're wrong and you need to call a spade a spade when the person is wrong. And a lot of times also you have the other side of that where companies won't own failure. Whereas Amazon in many of its letters will be clear that it expects to fail and where they have failed. And that's where knowing that failure is a natural outcome of a higher risk tolerance. Not everyone can get there, and that's hard to implement. But I think both of these are what we should be aspiring for and trying to practice because it means better delighting our customers and it means going farther to achieve that delight for our customers. Because out of that comes customer appreciation, loyalty, and ultimately extreme business success.